We have a special privilege this morning uh, to hear from one of my friends uh, to speak to us and share the word with us. And so I want to give you sort of a, an intro. I want you to... Um, I want you to really begin to open your heart to receive what he has to say to us. Rob Brindle and I go back many years now, and uh, we um, were at New Life Church together in Colorado Springs for many years, working alongside one another as pastors. And um, Rob is an incredible, incredible man of God. I, I've learned and grown to trust him, to believe in him, to receive from him. Um, Rob is a Duke University grad. Mm, which means he uses bigger words than I do. But uh, you, will, you will find him a blessing. And he was also, he uh, spent time in the military. You were a tank commander, as I recall it, a tank commander. And so he has all kinds of experiences. And then he worked at New Life for how many years? Ten years at New Life Church with me. And then he uh, planted a church about three years ago. Was that right? Almost three years ago. Yeah, so he uh, is planted Denver United, and so he is in Denver, and they are doing great work in the city of Denver. We were driving around yesterday a little bit in Austin and noticing the similarities in the way the, the, the South Austin feels like South Denver, and there was really some, very much some similarities in the, in the people, in the architecture, in the way the city feels, and so they're doing great urban work in the city. Um, their church has grown from a handful of people uh, three years ago to uh, about 900 or 1,000 in attendance, which is an incredible thing. So something is really happening at Denver United. Now, I invited Rob, when we started our church, I invited some friends, some peers that I believed in and, and some people that were older than me, peers and, and those who are older. We have five overseers in our church, and Rob is one of those overseers. And so even though he's younger than me by a few years, he, um, he is um, just a couple, just a few years. And he, he is such a wonderful man of God that I believe in, that I receive from, that I trust. And so I've invited him to come as I have. I'm really inviting all the overseers during this year of our first beginning year where we're putting things in place and setting foundations. It's important for you to not only hear from me, it's important for you to hear from those who are my influences, those who are friends of mine, those who are really here to help us along in the journey and to be partners with us and part of our family. And so Rob is really part of our family. And I'm so grateful for that. So I want you to open up your heart really wide, and I want you to receive what Jesus says through him, all right? And so would you just, everybody, big one chapel welcome for Rob Brindle. Love you. Good morning, one chapel. As Pastor Ross mentioned, I'm a Duke University alum, which means this is a big time of year for me. March Madness is upon us. Uh, but in fairness to you all here in Texas and in Austin in particular, I understand that you know a thing or two about college sports and rivalries and tradition and that kind of thing. Um, and, and as I was on the plane, knowing that I, I needed to know my, my friends whom I'd be sharing with, it, it occurred to me that I ought to try and figure out, but for the life of me, I couldn't remember which ACC school is here. In Austin, and so uh, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know. I, <laughs> you know, I think you get the privilege of playing our team here uh, a little bit later in the bracket. We'll see how that goes. But I like basketball season because it's an opportunity for the the Texas football hubris to, you know, get contextualized. 
the, the reminder that and you're like, okay, what are you speaking on again? <laughs> hey, I am so excited to be here. The last time that I was with you was opening a uh, launch Sunday, and it was, it was an exciting time, but to see what the Lord has done between then and now, the family that he's created out of a bunch of strangers who have come together around a common idea or a hope is really thrilling. It's humbling for me uh, as a fellow sojourner and church pioneer to watch my dear friend uh, express the leadership gifts that God has put in him and to, to be the person in, in full that, that we all, working with him and working for him, looked up to him uh, and saw him to be. It's really exciting. Um, ordinary, well, first, let me bring greetings to you from uh, what I, I believe is becoming a sister church family. And over the years, I look forward to that expressing itself. What Pastor Ross didn't share with you is that he also is an overseer for us. And so that means that we have a, a collegial as well as a friendship relationship and a true sister church families dynamic that I look forward to developing and exploring. Uh, it, it, it seems beholden uh, or incumbent upon me, I, I should say, to share a story about me and Ross since we go back so many years. You know, the fact that I pastored at my last job for 10 and he for 18 would make many of you say, did you guys start when you were 6 and 12? <laughs> We just, I don't know, maybe it was in the water there, the, the looking young factor, but I have the three kids in elementary school and the little wrinkles that are starting to form right here in the corners of the eye to prove it. Well, the problem with the, uh, with the sharing of, of good raw stories, as I always like to get from my pastor's friends when they come to preach, as I, as I was thinking through them, and there are many, the problem is that most of them found me being the one getting embarrassed and Ross being the wise, mature adult supervision bailing me out or doing the right thing. Uh, so it's difficult to think of stories that, that really showed him up because he was always the older brother who was dutiful and doing the right thing. And I was always the younger, bombastic one putting my foot in my mouth and having him bail me out. But one morning in particular stands out back in the days at New Life. We had a guest speaker, and in those days, New Life was very influential in the evangelical world, so we had a sort of who's who of evangelical leadership parade through, one of whom was a man whom I've come to deeply admire, and I, I suspect many of you have as well, Chuck Colson, who's one of the undisputed generals of evangelical Christianity, crosses over the streams. Well, he's also, a, a, in addition to a, a wise uh, leading man of God, uh, when you get to know him personally, a kindly elderly gentleman. And you don't notice these things because in the photos and the brochures, they get airbrushed, but I realized he, he was a kind old man. And I, Ross was leading worship. I was hosting Mr. Colson, and then our senior pastor was, was officiating the service. And so Mr. Colson, between first and second service, I asked him, what would you like to do? Had water, had beef jerky, all the stuff that you do. And he said, I'd actually like to take a, a, a rest. And I said, in what form would you like that rest to happen? And he said, I'd like to just lay down and take a nap. And I was like, really? But he informed me that living through the Nixon White House, you, you ran on such high octane that you had to learn to put your head down and fall asleep on command. And so I said, all right. I tried to put him on the little love seat in the green room, but he didn't really fit. And so he said, do you have like a big couch I could stretch out on? And I said, I know just the place. And so Pastor Ross's office was known far and wide in, uh, in the church leadership as the comfiest couches. Uh, because the creative crowd, he was the worship pastor at the time, they needed comfortable furniture in which to cultivate the, the Holy Spirit's leading. And so he had this long, overstuffed blue couch, and I was like, no one will be in there. I'll take you down there. So I bring him down to Ross's office and slip him in the back door. He lays out. I turn the light out, and then he's asleep. I thought, wow, that's uncanny. 
That, and, and that happened through the break between services. And then he said, can you wake me up about the last worship song? And we'll go in for the second service. So I'm listening and watching just before the last worship song. I slip out and I go back to Ross's office. And I go in to wake him up. And I, I think, how do you wake up this larger-than-life man of God? So I lean down next to him and I'm like, Mr. Coulson. Mr. Coulson. Chuck. And then I'm like, do I touch him? <laughs> Mr. Coulson. <laughs> Hoping that he'll wake up before he realizes I was, you know, rousting him. Mr. Coulson. I'm like, oh my gosh. So I start sweating at this point because the last worship song's wrapping up and I can't wake him up. And I'm like, Mr. Coulson. And, the, and, and then all of a sudden it occurred to me, I'm like, oh my gosh, he's dead. And so I'm like, Mr. Coulson. So then I go out of the office and I'm like, oh, this would happen to me when I'm hosting him. So then I'm like texting uh, into the church. I'm like, keep going. I think he's dead. And they're all like, what? And so, and so Ross is up there on the platform stalling and like doing this, you know, <laughs> keep going. And, and I'm like, shoot. So then the life safety come back and they all come in, they turn the lights on. And, and of course, it's like trying to tell the mechanic the noise your car's making. It never does it when you're with them. Well, the life safety guys come in and they turn the light on and he sits right up and goes, is it time? So we walk in and, and, and I walk in and Ross looks at me and goes, idiot, you can't take him anywhere. And it, it happened over and over. That was the sort of unfortunate story of, of my life. <laughs> years. It seems to me that in the traditions uh, and liturgies of church across the spectrum, the time between Christmas and Easter is, is usually rich in, in church tradition. We talk a lot about the nuances of our theology and develop our church calendar teachings. But it occurs to me as a pragmatist, and you all being church pioneers are pragmatists as well, so I, I assume we can speak to each other on a practical level, that there's no time of the church year that's more conducive to lifting our eyes off of ourselves and looking outward than the Christmas to Easter axis. Because for better or for worse, whether it ought to be the case or not, in reality, the time of year when more people in our city who don't attend church or don't surrender their lives to Jesus tip their cap and at least give a cursory nod toward religion and toward Jesus more than any other time of the year is Christmas to Easter. So this is the time when, of all times, we are wise to be thinking out and not in. And so it, it occurs to me that it's not by accident that you all here and we back in Denver have been focusing on engaging our city during this time of year, during this strategic window of opportunity. No doubt about it, with Easter upon us, it is the season for evangelism. Now, when you say evangelism in church, there's a variety of experiences. I've been in church my entire life. I know this. So we don't have to put on pretenses. Pastor Ross knows it too. He's been in church his whole life. The truth of the matter is when you say evangelism, there's a series of feelings that people experience and a gripping of the seat and a preparing to endure the onslaught. It occurs to me that evangelism in church is kind of like flossing in the greater American populace. Have you ever noticed the chasm, the vast disparity between the number of people who know they ought to floss and those who actually do it. I'm convinced that the majority of us don't floss and we don't floss not because of lack of understanding or lack of information. There's very few of us left whom the dental hygiene message hasn't reached. 
There's not many of us left on, in America who don't realize that flossing is good for our health and not to floss is at our own peril. We know it, and yet we don't do it. And so if, if I were to ask, and I will, how many of you know that, or how many of you don't know that, that flossing is a good thing? You're supposed to do it, right? And there's nobody. Now, I'm not going to ask you how many of you don't floss or how many of you do floss because I will make liars out of you. And you're like, we wouldn't lie. We're in church. Yes, you would. We all lie when it comes to flossing. The dentist says, have you, have you been flossing? And we're like, yes. And what we mean is I flossed yesterday so that I could tell the dentist a sort of truth as if one flossing go-round is going to scrape away a year's worth of hard-to-reach plaque. You know, we all know it's not true, but we don't do it. And the reason we don't do it is because it doesn't feel good. It makes our gums bleed. It's distasteful. Evangelism seems to be that way. And we've all seen enough bad evangelism to last a lifetime. One time, there was a guest speaker at New Life when we were there. And Ernest loves Jesus, passionate, eloquent communicator. He told our congregation of thousands that the only real way to do evangelism is, is this way that I'm about to tell you. And in fact, I, I recall that the message was called Why Revival Tarries. And his theory was that revival, in fact, tarries or is slow in, in coming to be because we don't evangelize through shock confrontation messages. His idea was that we should use the law and the Old Testament and particularly the Ten Commandments and hold people accountable who don't love God or give a flip about Jesus. And so he said you should do it this way. He showed a video of himself on Santa Monica Pier, you know, 50-year-old in sort of pleated khakis and button-down shirt, kind of looking his part with penny loafers on, talking to a bunch of gangbangers. And he comes up to him and says this. Well, you, have you heard of the Ten Commandments? Yeah, man. Okay, so he's got a camera on them, so they're kind of feeling a little nervous and a little excited to be on camera. He says, have you ever told a lie? And the guy's like, yeah. He said, what does that make you? Human. No, it makes you a liar. Okay. Um, have you ever stolen anything? And the guy's like, yes. And he says, what does that make you? All right, I see where he's going with this. It makes me a thief. Now, the Bible says that thou shalt not commit adultery, but Jesus added that committing adultery uh, happens in our heart when we merely look at another person lustfully. Have you ever done that? <laughs> yeah, all the time. So by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, adulterer at heart, and we've only covered the first three. <laughs> and that we were supposed to, do you remember this? We were supposed to evangelize this way, and, and if we didn't, revival would in fact tarry longer. But if we did, revival would no longer tarry, and Jesus would sweep across the earth. And I remember hearing it and thinking, okay, it makes logical sense, I guess, that, that, that we can use the law to prove that they need a savior. But what, what forest we seem to be missing for the trees is that these gangbangers were about as likely to go out and accept Jesus after that embarrassment on camera as they were to go out and, 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 and do a lot of other unseemly things, <laughs> and probably more so. So it occurred to me that while there may be some motivational truth to that, practically, that's not, that doesn't have a prayer to work. And I knew that they knew, the people sitting out there that I was helping lead, that they knew that I knew. And I was hosting the service that morning, so I felt a sense of additional responsibility on their behalf for what they're being instructed to do. I knew that none of them was going to go out and do that. Not one. And I never, I, maybe you did, but over the years which ensued, never heard one story about somebody either leading a person to Jesus using that method or being led. Now, I'm not trying to critique a person. I'm trying to critique an idea. Thank God for that person in his ministry. Thank God that he loves Jesus and is preaching with all his heart. But I'm interested in preaching in a way that works. 
And I'm interested in finding an evangelism that works. And I personally, as a Christian, am tired of evangelism getting thrown out the baby with the bathwater because we've had too many trysts with bad evangelism or evangelism that feels inaccessible or awkward or unfun or not likely to work. I think those gangbangers were about as unlikely to receive Christ with that sort of approach as our congregation was unlikely to go out and try and win people that way because intuitively they're good sense people and they know that that's not going to work. No one's going to hear that and fall down on their knees and, and say the sinner's prayer. Well, too often we throw the baby out with the evangelistic bathwater, but it seems to me that insofar as Scripture commands every one of us as believers to do the work of an evangelist, and Jesus said that going and making disciples out of every nation, every people group, every gathering of, of different sorts here and abroad, that's our standing orders, that there is a redemption that's necessary in the realm of evangelism. And so this morning, I want to take a few minutes and deconstruct the topic. Go back to the primary source material, break it down to the studs, and look at evangelism the way that Jesus did it. If he is the author and the perfecter of our faith, I believe that he has a more perf perfected, a more natural, appealing, less off-putting, and effective way of doing the work of an evangelist. So our title this morning is Jesus evangelist. We're going to take a quick uh, romp through the book of John, which uh, over against the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so-called by Bible scholars because they synopsize a linear account of Jesus's life and ministry. The gospel of John is sort of the color commentary. So if you put it in Monday night football terms, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are like Al Michaels, and the gospel of John is like John Madden. Circles and arrows, not necessarily hinged in time or linear, but adds color and depth and insight. And so a perfect place to go to get some some of Jesus' contours of evangelism. We're going to start in John chapter 1 and survey three texts to find some redemptive lessons of Jesus' style of evangelism. So we're beginning at the beginning, John chapter 1. This is the calling of the first of the men who would go on to be Jesus' disciples. But at this point, they were scarcely believers themselves. They were simply responding to the grace of God stirring in their hearts. We're in verse 35. And scripture teaches the next day, John, this is John the Baptist, not John the author of this gospel text. John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin and a prophet who came just before Jesus in his ministry unveiling to prepare people to hear the message of grace and truth that would come in their Messiah. John was there with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus and turning around, Jesus saw them and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. What's fascinating about this rather pedestrian account to me, it's just a, a almost filler text when you read the scriptures looking for highlight stories, not one that gets preached often, but you see that in Jesus' calling of the men who would be his first disciples and Jesus evangelizing them and bringing them to a saving knowledge of the truth, not only is he not confrontational, not only does he not shock them with a, a, an address of their sin or with something that they ought to want to care about, but in fact, they didn't at all. But Jesus didn't even thrust the entire message on them up front. He simply invited them to come and experience it for themselves. He said, in effect, come along and see. Find out what it is that your soul is sensing. 
What's notable about Jesus' evangelism with his first followers, he had to have had all the same zeal, the same pioneering spirit that we feel to build this new church movement and establish the new covenant. But Jesus never pressured them to make a decision in the moment. He wasn't ever, for that matter, here or elsewhere in a hurry with any of his followers. You get the sense, in fact, that for Jesus, evangelism wasn't a transaction at all. It was a relationship to be developed and forged. Jesus didn't call them out on their sin. He didn't scare them over the coming apocalypse. He simply invited them to come along with him for the journey. And therein, therein lies the essence of Jesus' evangelism strategy. He met people where they actually were, and then he invited them along with him for the journey. And that seems obvious if it weren't so frequently not done. Jesus met people where they actually were, and it occurs to me that in ministry, we do one of two things every time. We either meet people where they are, or we meet them where we feel they ought to be. Now, we church leaders are famous, infamous for meeting people where we think they ought to be and then standing over them, wagging a finger down because they're not there yet. Jesus never did that. That's, the, that's what makes evangelism so distasteful to us. The sense intuitively, even if we don't have words to put to it, that we know they ought to want to do what we're telling them to do, but in point of fact, they don't. We haven't gotten onto their radar screen yet. Jesus allowed them to be where they were. He met people where they actually are and then patiently earned the right to bring them along to where he thought they ought to be. I love in verse 37, the two disciples heard Jesus say it. They followed him. Turning around, he asked them a profound and simple question. He said this, what do you want? What do you want? What an counterintuitive question to ask someone you're thinking of evangelizing. The point really here in this evangelistic encounter isn't what you want. It's what I want and what he wants and what I want you to want, not what you actually do want. We always communicate what you want is probably sinful and hedonistic and doesn't matter at all. Stop wanting that. Be someone different and altogether religious and be ready to recite this prayer and remember these four spiritual laws. But that's not the way people are wired, is it? And Jesus not only recognized that, but he honored it. He suggested by asking them, what do you want? That he's okay with their wanting what they, in fact, want. That that's okay. It's okay for them to be where they are. And he dignified them right there. And that's the thing about Jesus. He always dignified people. It's the incredibly wonderful but altogether unexpected thing about Jesus. If you stop and think about it, he allows people to be where they are, to try, if you will, before they buy, and then to come along at their own pace. He never seemed uptight about people's slow progress, about their lack of knowledge, and he always dignified and valued them. In 1 Thessalonians 2.8, this is one of my very favorite verses in all of Scripture. The Apostle Paul, as he so often does, adds insightful commentary on Jesus' ministry and life. He said to this young church, reminding them how he, in fact, evangelized them as they were enterprising into the evangelism realm themselves with their neighbors. He said, remember how we did it. We didn't come with a high-pressure sales pitch. We didn't come reminding you that with scare tactics that the, the end is near. You better repent or you're going to get stung by scorpions and probably thrown into a lake of fire. We didn't confront you about your sin. No, he said, we came, with you, we came to you gently like a mother with her nursing child. We loved you so much 
that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. We shared our lives with you. We invited you along on the journey with us, and that was how you experienced grace. Paul's saying, in effect, don't forget it. Don't expect that it's going to happen differently than that with others. Now, it's worth noting that meeting people where they are requires our being where they are, which is tough for us in the church. Jesus never cloistered himself with the religious crowd and went slumming on evangelism day. Jesus lived among the people, so much so that the religious crowd was consistently pricked by the company that he kept. He hung out around the hungry. He sought out the seekers. He didn't wait for them to come to him, making his church so dumbed down from religion that maybe people wouldn't notice they were in a church. He went and sought out seekers. He said, the son of man came to seek and save that which is lost. And so it begs the question, how many non-Christian people are you and am I friends with? To ask something of a congregation with evangelism that says you need to go out, meet people who aren't at all like you, whom you have no contact or connection with, no context for relationship to, and confront them with the Ten Commandments, you know that I know, that I know that you know that you're not going to do that. So let's save our breath and talk practically here. Is it a reasonable challenge, though, for a leader or a pastor to say to you, would you consider just broadening your friendship circle? Make new friends and keep the old. So my kindergartner's learning. Add to it people who haven't encountered the grace of God, at least in a transformational way. What if we broadened our friendship criteria? Jesus' evangelism method was relationship, pure and simple. No way around it. Going to church 51 weeks of the year and on evangelism week going slumming and and getting our game on and getting over the nervousness and awkwardness and boldly proclaiming some sort of truth as if people wanted to hear it or we'd earned the right to speak it is is as ineffective as it is uncomfortable. So let's dispense with the nonsense and go about doing it in a way that A, works, and B, is conducive to the lives we live. That's why you're challenging your church to get out in the community, make friends with the people around you, and earn the right to speak to their lives is so the heart of Jesus. Okay, our next encounter, John chapter 8. So skip ahead a few pages in your Bible to John chapter 8. This is a familiar story for many of us who have been in church for a while. The teachers of the law, verse 3, and the Pharisees, that's kind of the religious establishment in first century Palestine, the people whose, whose ministry Jesus came and sliced through, they brought to Jesus a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And that was kind of the the persona non grata of that day. The person caught in adultery was the the person who was the emblem of sin. You know how we have our our kind of pet sins in the evangelical 21st century world that we say are, are communicate tacitly are worse than other sins, even though we know they're not. This was that person in his day. So they made her stand up before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone her What do you say? Of course, they're trying to trap Jesus, but Jesus' response elucidates his heartbeat for evangelism. Verse 7, they kept on questioning Jesus. He finally straightened up and said to them, if any of you is without sin, in this famous saying, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then later he asked her, woman, where'd they all go? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. 
Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. We looked first in the John 1 encounter at Jesus' method of evangelism, the way he went about it. Here in John 8, you see a glimpse of Jesus' message, the gospel he preached, the message he communicated. When I was 18 years old, I had a sports injury my senior year in high school, which debilitated me to the point that I couldn't do my customary summer job working in food service. And so I had to go out and seek a new way to earn money to go to college the next year. And I got a job um, selling encyclopedia sets door to door. And we did it not in the middle class town where I lived, but in this sort of other side of the tracks town one over. And we learned a, 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 a high pressure sales tack And there was something, even though no one could have known all of the contours of the information age that was about to explode, there was something intuitive in most of us that suggested that 1976 was calling and they wanted the 26-volume sets back, that that was a thing of the past, and that somehow all these were going to be on computers not too far from now. So it was a hard sell, selling $3,000 book sets to people that were struggling to feed their kids. And I felt really torn up about it, but I did it for a summer and I learned a valuable life lesson. And that is the pain and awkwardness of trying to sell something that people neither need nor want. So what do we do when we're trying to sell something they don't need or want? We resort to tactics. We resort to pressure and and to manipulation and to clever rhetoric. Jesus amazingly never seemed to have to twist people's arms. Even though in evangelism, we've all experienced that. And if we haven't, we've heard other people's horror stories and thought, I'm not doing that. We've all experienced that awkwardness of going out to sell something that people don't really want. And so we have to apply manipulation tactics or pressure or appeal to the apocalypse and the coming tribulation or something like that to try and make them care. Jesus never seemed to twist people's arms. He didn't have to because Jesus, listen, Jesus offered a gospel that people wanted. He offered a gospel that people wanted. So what was the gospel that Jesus preached? Too often we make this gospel into something that it's not at all. We end up selling something that isn't God's idea. We present another product entirely than the message that Jesus brought. It's easy in stories like this for us preachers to beat up on the Pharisees. The Pharisees are kind of the easy punching bag. But if you stop and think about it, more often than not, the Pharisees bear a more than passing passing resemblance to us. Their attitudes here, as in so many places in Scripture, they hit uncomfortably close to home. The Pharisees are coming at this woman, a candidate for the grace of God, if ever there were one, with hatred with a spectacle, with a confrontation that's not only not going to likely win her to some sort of religious faith experience, but that's going to turn her against them entirely and her whole family too. And everyone who ever hears the story about them branding her with the scarlet letter. Jesus, though, he slices right through that and he demonstrates a totally different gospel message. In his seminal book, What's so amazing about grace? One of my very favorite contemporary Christian authors, Philip Yancey, tells a story that's very telling. He talked about going to the White House during the Clinton administration and being asked with a small group of evangelical leaders to have audience with the president. Undoubtedly, his poll numbers were lagging among this this demographic, and he wanted to find out why and be in touch with that constituency. Can't blame him for that, even if it felt gimmicky to them at the time. Well, 
he sits in this meeting and listens to Bill Clinton, as he describes it, document, account for a genuine, if immature, faith experience. He said to come out of that meeting believing Bill Clinton was a mature believer would have been a bridge too far, but equally so to come out of that believing that Bill Clinton wasn't a believer at all. He was simply like, Yancey said, most of us in the church, an immature Christian, struggling to get over sin, feeling guilty, repenting, and trying to fuel up at church. Talked about the challenges of going to church as president and things like that. But Yancey recounts that at the end of that conversation, Bill Clinton looked these evangelical leaders in the eye after they had each had their couple of minutes to share whatever it is that they had prepared. And he said, tell me one thing. He recounted the treatment far and wide that he had received, that most of us remember to our shame from the evangelical Christian community. And he said, why are evangelical Christians so full of hate? Here's the thing, Jesus, he was the friend of sinners. And too often we present ourselves as their enemy. Jesus was the friend of sinners. Romans chapter two says in verse four, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? Do you judge people even as you weren't judged by God, Paul says in this passage? For the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience. Do you not realize, don't you remember? It's God's, what? Kindness that leads us to repentance. God's judgment doesn't lead people to repentance and certainly our judgment doesn't either. It's his kindness that does. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18, the apostle Paul says that the gospel of reconciliation is this in verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. That's the essence of grace. And that's the message that Jesus preached. God's not counting your sins against you. That's good news because I don't know about you, but I don't need a theologian or a lifelong pastor to tell me the sin that's in my heart. And I didn't before I knew Christ and had a relationship with him. I know what's in me. And so do they. It's the prescription. It's the prescription for grace that they're lacking. And that's a message which their souls hunger and thirst to hear. If relationship is Jesus's method of evangelism, grace is his message. It's so simple. We are ambassadors, Paul says in that passage we just read. We are ambassadors of this message of grace. God's not counting people's sins against them. Why is it that that message so simple is so hard for us to communicate, even as it was so easy for us to receive? Well, I think the honest truth, if we're willing to look in our hearts, is that, okay, truth talk time. Maybe this is only me, in which case I'll be very embarrassed. But there's a little piece of me, okay, there's a medium-sized piece of me that kind of wants God to count people's sins against them. They hurt me. They did bad things to my family. They disparaged the name of God. They profited with immorality. And I don't want them to get let off the hook. I don't want it to be that easy. I don't want it to be free. I want God to count it against them a little bit. I mean, I don't want him to burn in hell for eternity, but I want him to suffer, right? So we don't like grace because we want him to get what's coming to them. But by grace, we were saved through faith. By grace, the city of Austin is going to be saved as well, if they be saved at all. The gospel, everyone, it's good news. 
When we hold out the true grace of God, the message Jesus preached, it refreshes weary souls. It meets the ultimate felt need. We don't have to peddle it clever, push it hard, or package it extra appealing. It self-authors, it self-activates. The grace of God transforms people without us having to twist their arm. It's like when my staff switched from IBMs to Macs. Now, I'm not a big computer enthusiast. I have one on my staff. I just, and I worked fine on the Windows network until the, the, the terrible uh, day that Vista happened. And it would suddenly stop doing things that were elemental to my computing needs. And so I was like, this isn't gonna work. The thing just shutting off on me or not waking up. And so that gave my tech savvy associate an opportunity to suggest that we switch to Apple products, wafer thin. So I go down to the Apple store. I'm serious. I'm there. This is my first tryst with Apple, right? They had all the cool slick computers out and I'm looking around and like, okay, the cool haired Apple salesman kids over there helping him. So no one's noticing. And I'm all playing with the computer, not knowing that that's what you're supposed to do. I didn't know. I'm used to the world where a heavily managed environment is controlled by a heavily imperious salesperson who demonstrates it for you in all of its wonder. And so I'm like playing with it myself. And then the young, cool-haired man comes up to me and he's like, can I help you? And I'm like, oh, sorry. I, I'm, yeah, please. You, yeah, you obviously are the trained professional and know what you should do. I was just, I was like just browsing. He's like, no, actually, that's what it's there for. Please go ahead all you like. Really? You mean I can touch it and make it do stuff and I'm not going to crash it? He's like, no, go ahead. By the time we had the money, no crazy-haired Apple sales kid had to persuade me. I came to him asking him to sell me several thousand dollars worth of computers. Jesus offered a gospel that people wanted. Too often we make the gospel that we're selling into something it's not intended to be at all. We present another product entirely than the message Jesus brought. You know, in this story and in others like it, it's easy to beat up on the Pharisees. They're the bad guys. But too often, the Pharisees strike a little bit close to home. Their motives, their ideas are a little bit too similar to our own. The Pharisees and their hatred and their judgment of this woman. In his seminal work, What's So Amazing About Grace, one of my very favorite contemporary Christian authors, Philip Yancey, recounts a story of being invited to the Clinton White House with a handful of evangelical leaders to meet with the president. Now, undoubtedly, it was a political move. He was lagging in the polls among our constituency and wanted to hear from their representatives, but you can't blame them. That might be good leadership. Well, these guys came loaded for bear. You remember how hostile the Christian community was to Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was kind of like, had a little bit of the Hitler syndrome in the Christian community. You know about Hitler. You can't, not only can you not say that Hitler was good, but you can't say anything good about Hitler. Like you can't, it's unpolitically correct to say that Hitler had a sweet dog or was a snappy dresser or God forbid was a good leader or something like that. You can't say that, right? That's how Bill Clinton was in the evangelical community. You couldn't say anything good about Bill Clinton. One time in New Life, I said something from the platform about Bill Clinton's being a fiscally responsible president, which I believe he was. I believe he was the best fiscal Republican that we had in the White House in 20 years. That's my political opinion. And, you know, I, I, you're, we're in Texas, so I think I'm safe generally, but we're in Austin, so I may not be. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> Rewind. Whatever 
your politics. The evangelical community was rough on Bill Clinton. Philip Yancey talked about how Clinton recounted a story of faith that left one without any doubt that he was no mature believer, but equally clear that he was very much a believer. He said, you couldn't listen to this guy's story and deny that he was an authentic believer. He was just like most of us in the church, a young or immature or weak believer. He sinned and felt bad and self-flagellated and came to church and repented and, and tried to overcome his guilt and did the stuff that so many of us do in religion. At the end of his meeting with Bill Clinton, Philip Yancey recalls a lowering of his own defense and a softening of his heart. And he said that Clinton asked a question that haunted him afterward. He told them, not with any gimmickry, he said, if anything, saying this to this crowd would have hurt him politically. But Clinton, he said, had the most honest human moment I ever experienced with him. He said that he told some stories about his cold and bristly reception from the evangelical community who purported Jesus. And he asked these five leaders, tell me one thing, why are evangelical Christians so full of hate? Too often, we find ourselves aligning with the Pharisees' ill-fated evangelistic methods, judgment, condescension, flat-out hatred. But the thing about Jesus is he was the friend of sinners. Too often, we present ourselves as their enemy. Jesus was the friend of sinners. Romans chapter 2 says, do you, not, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, the same kindness that was shown to you in judging others? Paul says, his tolerance and his patience, do you not realize God's Kindness leads you toward repentance. God's judgment doesn't lead people to repentance. Certainly, our judgment doesn't either. It's his kindness that does it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is talking about this redemption and this reconciliation that God is working through it. And he says in verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Here's what that reconciliation message consisted of. God was not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We're therefore Christ's ambassadors. We are ambassadors of this message that God is not counting people's sins against them for a while. That's good news indeed. I would suggest that if relationship is Jesus' method of evangelism, which we talked about briefly to start and more in-depthly in the first service, that grace is Jesus' evangelistic message. The gospel of grace is the gospel Jesus preached. From the very beginning, Jesus said, Hey, everybody, good news. The kingdom of God is coming near. Now, the way we tend to preach it is that Jesus said, Good news, everybody. You get to go to the kingdom of God, but that's not what he said, is it? He said, I've got some really good news for you. The kingdom of God is coming to you. Here, now, right where you are, mired in sin, wallowing in dysfunction, a ball of inner damage, an Oprah episode waiting to happen. Wherever you are, the kingdom of God's coming to you. Here, now. That's Jesus' gospel. It's a gospel of grace that God is not counting people's sins against them. And somehow we confuse Jesus' the purpose of his second coming with the purpose of his first. Purpose of his second coming is most decidedly judgment. Not so is first. The most famous verse in the Bible, hanging between every goalpost during football season, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Too bad we don't memorize the one after it. Do you know what it says? For, for God didn't send his son into the world to 
condemn it, but to save it through him. God is not holding people's sins against him. That's the gospel of grace. The kingdom of God, it's coming to you right here and now. I wonder why we stumble over that. It's not that we don't understand this simple message. It's almost so simple as to be insulting to tell you if we, the church, weren't so inept at preaching grace. You know why, at least in my heart, true confession, and this may be an awkward moment because this may be just me, but do you know why I think, at least for me sometimes, I hesitate to preach the gospel of grace to people when I'm sharing Christ with them? Maybe it's because we want God to count people's sins against them. Just a little bit. Like, not a lot. We don't want them to go to hell, no burning lake, no sulfur, no eternal torment. But we watch them prosper with wickedness while we suffered for righteousness. They hurt us. They hurt people we loved. We don't want them to get off the hook for free. We want to drag them in front of a tribunal and have them get what's coming to them, just like those Pharisees wanted to make an example out of that woman. We want people to have their sins counted against them just a little bit, but God doesn't. He said, don't forget, it wasn't cords of judgment with which God drew you. It was cords of what? His loving kindness. Those are nice cords to be drawn by. You liked being drawn by those cords. That's the same cords he wants to draw them. The upshot of this is, everybody, the gospel is good news. The gospel is a product people want to buy. It sells itself. The gospel refreshes weary souls. The gospel meets the ultimate felt need. We don't have to peddle it clever, push it hard, or package it extra appealing. The gospel self-installs. All we do is testify to the true grace of God. We live it, we share it, and as we're given invitation, we teach it. We are living testimonies of God's restorative grace. The Apostle Paul, at the end, not at the beginning, not fresh out of the, of the holding the coats of those stoning the Christians season, but right just before they're about to make a whole bunch of statues out of him and name bazillions of churches after him. In that season, right before he dies, Paul writes to his pupil Timothy and he says, here is a trustworthy saying deserving full acceptance. Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. If we can't share that gospel of grace, we have no part in Christ. But when we say, hey, everybody, hey, Austin, here's a trustworthy saying, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. There is one argument people cannot refute. No matter how persuasive your logic, no matter how refined your theology, they can always have one more question and you have answer. But no one can tell you you're wrong when you say your variation on this old theme. I once was lost and now I'm found. You can't tell me I'm wrong. You can't tell me my experience of redemption isn't true. I'm not telling you that I know anything you don't, and there's probably more questions and answers that I've got about this religion thing, but here's what I know. I once was lost, and now I'm found. That's the grace of God. John chapter 9, and we'll wrap it up. Jesus and his disciples encounter a man who's been born blind. Jesus had some words with him and then spit on the ground, made some mud, with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed he was. Others said, no, it's just a guy that looks like him. But he said, no, I'm that man. 
How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. And he replied, this man, this man they called Jesus. I don't know him from Adam, to be honest with you, but he put, made some mud of all things and he put it on my eyes. And it was kind of gross, but he told me to go wash in Siloam. So I washed and now I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I, I don't even know. So the Pharisees proceed to investigate this healing. They interrogate the man. They don't get it or they don't buy it. So they bring in his parents and interrogate his parents. And the scene devolves into a sort of Jerry Springer episode. In verse 24, a second time they called the man back after grilling his parents. It's almost comical at this point. And they said, give glory to God. In other words, quit your lying. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, look, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. I don't know much about all that stuff. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. And that I know for sure. We talked first about Jesus' method of discipleship, or rather of evangelism, by inviting disciples into relationship, and then his message of evangelism, which was the message of grace. Here, in this encounter, Jesus elucidates, uh, well, i got to disclaim something. I'm a preacher. I'm stuck in a preacher's body. We think in threes. Twos don't work. Fours are, are lopsided. I always think in threes, and they have to start with the same letter. Somewhere early on in preacher school, you get that if the points don't all start with the same letter, they're probably not as anointed. All right, so with that disclaimer, the first encounter highlighted Jesus' method of evangelism, the second, his message. And here you see Jesus' way of marketing. Like marketing, do we market the gospel? Marketing is simply getting on people's radar screen, passing the who cares test. Jesus recognized that this gospel of grace, however powerful it was, is only as valuable as they feel the need for it. And so he got onto people's radar screen. He had a very simple and very powerful marketing method. Notice how Jesus got this guy to care. This guy who said, this man named Jesus, I don't even know of him, later on says, I think he's a prophet. And by the end says, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Tell me what to believe and I'll believe it. Jesus healed this man, and here's what you've got to see in this encounter. He healed the man before he had a clue about the gospel that Jesus came to preach. Jesus compelled people by demonstrating God's kindness and by doing it up front. So I understand you all um, have a, a, spe a special love for Whole Foods. Well, we share that in Colorado. It's, it's this phenomenon that Denverites have taken to. It's like a grocery store, only more expensive. And with, with carts that are like grocery carts, only smaller. <laughs> Figuring that you obviously can't afford to fill up that grocery cart. So we'll just give you one that <laughs> it won't seem so empty. And I like going there because my kids can push it around and they don't crash into the chips aisle with a with a little cart. And so I was there with my daughter in, in, in Whole Foods in Denver, and I went to the, the, you know that wonderful, magical section in Whole Foods where they have the really expensive cheese? It's like, so I was there with Pastor Ross yesterday. He took me to the mothership. <laughs> yeah, we snapped a picture of it. The display of the really expensive cheese. It's the whole section of like cheese, but more expensive. And I covet that cheese. Because some of you I know are in your empty nest years. You've already educated your kids. You've already bought the 10 different pairs of soccer cleats. And so you've got discretionary income. You've kind of got an expensive cheese budget. I have no expensive cheese budget. I am in the season of life where we eat, we eat like craft. 
and that's good living. So I go to, so I go to, to Whole Foods because they put the expensive cheese out to sample, right? And have you discovered, have you discovered being Whole Foods savvy uh, people, have you discovered this Parmigiano Reggiano? That's what that is, a whole mountain of it. It is awesome. It's like $10 for a little tiny wedge, um, but it is so good. And the Whole Foods in Denver will occasionally put out a, a display of the Parmigiano Reggiano where you can sample it. And so I'm, I take my daughter in there and she's like, dad, can we visit the cheese? I'm like, yes, but first you need to understand this is no ordinary cheese. It once saved a young boy's life. No, it's kind of like that. <laughs> Do not be fooled by its commonplace appearance. This cheese, I'm like, this cheese can work wonders. This cheese can do things that you know not of, child. She's like, what's so special about it? I'm like, look at the price tag. She's like, $12 for a piece of cheese. And so that, that creates the proper aura around the sampling of the cheese, which makes the date have value, which is all the importance when you're trying to pull off Chick-fil-A as a date with your little girl. You do Chick-fil-A and then you go have the free expensive cheese, but she needs to know how expensive the cheese is for it to work. Okay, so... She's, so we have the cheese and then we're walking away and she asked me a very insightful question. She's like, dad, if that cheese is so expensive and people like it as much as you do, why do they give it away for free? It's a good question. It's a profound insight from a nine-year-old. I wonder whether Jesus' disciples didn't ask the same question. I've got this kingdom. I've got all this power. It's the hook. Why are you giving it away for free? What if, Jesus, you heal this guy and then he doesn't bow the knee and confess with his tongue? What if he doesn't recite the sinner's prayer? What if he goes on and makes a mockery of what we're doing or joins with those who are persecuting our brothers and you gave him the goods for free? How can you just do that? And it's as if Jesus said to him, it's true. It's true. Some people will eat the expensive cheese and not buy it. But others... Some of you who have the expensive cheese bandwidth in your empty nest budget, others are going to buy it. And if we give it out for free and generously, we'll make it up on those who buy it. And Jesus seemed to accept the fact that if we put the expensive cheese on a lower shelf so that nine-year-olds can eat it, and guys that are never going to buy a $12 block of cheese, some are going to take it and not buy it. But some, some are going to taste it and not be able to leave without it. That's the way Jesus marketed his product. That's the way he passed the who cares test. He got it on people's radar screens by giving them the kindness of God up front. He let them try it before they bought it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, My message, Paul talking, was not wise or persuasive words, but it was a demonstration, a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He never forgot that, he reminded them. How do we do that? What does that look like? Simply extending care for the people that we're identifying on our relational radar screen, our neighbors, the people that we sit in cubes next to, the people we stand in line behind, the people we cheer on the sidelines alongside or during our kids' basketball games, the people in our world, extending God's kindness, demonstrating his compassion, reaching out, the thing about life, and it's sort of a dark cloud perspective, but it has a redemptive silver lining. Every one of us has our darkest day ahead of us. In the case of me and Pastor Ross, I sincerely hope we have our second darkest day ahead of us because we went through a really dark day. But every one of them out there in Austin who don't know Jesus, they have a low point in the up and down wave of life's experience coming. When we are there, 
We've earned relationship and we demonstrate God's care when their wife is diagnosed with cancer. They lose their business and can't pay their electric bill. They get jilted by somebody who was supposed to add strength to their life and they're, they're a, a, an emotional sucking chest wound. Whatever is going on in their life, when we are there, when we're willing to demonstrate the kindness and the power of God up front, all of a sudden, the product which we represent, if you will, it passes the who cares test. It's on their radar screen. This man whom Jesus healed in verse 24, after getting summoned back to God, said, back to the Pharisees, says, I don't know whether he's a sinner. I just know this. I was blind and now I see. Jesus heard that the man had gotten thrown out in verse 35 and went and found him and said, do you believe in the son of man? The guy's like, who is he? Tell me so I may believe in him. In other words, you've earned equity with me. Brand trust is there. You got on my radar screen. I want what you're selling. Tell me what it is and where to find it. Jesus said, you've now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. The man says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. He became a disciple. When we meet people's felt need with the power and the grace of God, with his kindness and compassion, evangelism is like shooting fish in a barrel. It's easy. You don't have to persuade people to buy something they don't want. They're coming to you begging to buy it from you, just like this man with Jesus. All he did at this point was extend an invitation. He just extended an invitation. Hey, everybody, let me close by telling you this. It's an odd place to close, but it's important. Religion has taught us two lies. Religion has taught us two lies that debilitate our evangelism. One is that you have to be a super spiritual black belt to pray for somebody and have Jesus respond and see them healed. It's not true. Read the Bible. Read Jesus' life. It's just not true. Jesus said these signs will follow those who believe. Not those who believe and go to some day-long seminar to learn how to cast out a demon, though there's nothing wrong with that. He didn't say these signs will follow believers as long as they've gotten their double eagle rank in prayer ministry. Jesus said, these signs will follow those who believe. Do you believe that if you lay hands on somebody and pray for them, if you take the risk to say, may I pray for you, that Jesus will intervene in their life, will heal their broken finances, will heal their broken relationships, will heal their broken life, their broken heart, and their broken body? Jesus isn't looking for people who have kung fu healing skills. He's looking for people who will take him at his word. When we meet people at their point of need and demonstrate God's compassion, the gospel preaches itself. All the inhibition's gone. The second lie that the church and religion have taught us is that people have to be believers. They have to have gone to 12-step discipleship seminars in order to get, in order to get healed. It's just not true. Not only is the grace of God available to people who haven't experienced him yet, that's whom Jesus had in mind. He said, the Son of Man didn't come to seek and save the found. He came to seek and save that which has been lost. Jesus desires that we manifest his compassion and his power by caring for the people in our community, the people he's put around us, the people in our lives that we've intentionally built relationships with. And then at that point, as Jesus' love, compassion, 
and power become manifest in their lives, all it takes is an invitation. The gospel sells itself. Can I pray for you this morning? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for the good, good work you're doing among my friends here in this city. I thank you for your heart of compassion for the city of Austin. And Lord, we join our faith and say, rescue people in this city. Draw people to yourself with loving kindness. Reveal yourself through us. Let your church shine with your glory. Father, I pray that you would take the cares, the worries, the burdens of life that my friends brought into this room and you would give them grace to cast them onto you so that they would in turn take your burden, which is easy and light. Lord, that they would shine in this city with the love of Jesus. Father, thank you for this church. Continue to establish your work here. May everything they put their hands to prosper and every place they go be claimed for the kingdom of God. Thank you for them and I bless them in the name of Jesus.